Oh.
This is the St. Long Baptism Podcast Channel. This is episode 37. I don't have a title. I mean, I have a title, but I need to edit it so that it's not a jumbled up mess when I print it. Um, the topic of this episode is going to be Fidelity to doctrine is important, but we need to match the message to our society and culture and time. But first a prayer, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Amen. All that I am, all that I have, and all that I do shall be consecrated to the service, honor, and glory, and exaltation of the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the Sacred Heart of Jesus in the Heavenly Kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Immaculate Heart of Mary, please pray for us. Sacred Heart of Jesus, please pray for us. Amen. So, for the uninitiated, I cannot, as I never, I, I, I have to put in some sort of disclaimer on every episode that I do. Because not everybody starts at the beginning and works their way up. People go where they go. So this particular episode is going to be aimed at sedevacantists in general. For those of you who don't know, a sedevacantist is a Catholic who believes that the Vatican II Council was heretical and that Anything that came after the Vatican II Council is, is heretical by its very nature. If you want to understand what Sedevacantism is, I've done a couple episodes on there. Hopefully it'll give you an idea of what I'm talking about. So basically, uh, it's pre-Vatican II Catholics not the actual people who lived before Vatican II. That was in the 60s. It's, not a, it's, it's for people that hold on to the doctrines and the teachings of pre-Vatican II Catholicism. Now having said that, I listen to a lot and have listened to a lot of Sedevacantist material now, the Lord has blessed me in that there is tons of material that I can listen to without re-listening to the same things. Although, in, in, in the interest of fairness, I do happen to listen to some episodes more than once just to refresh my memory or just to... Um, reacquaint myself and when I say said of a conscious material I'm not just talking about the apologetics I listen uh, there there are certain channels on YouTube that are devoted toward um, seminarian uh, lessons given by said of a bishops there are also uh, sermons and teachings and conferences given 
by said vacantist bishops and priests if you have not listened to any of these teachings or sermons I highly recommend them I believe in some of my Vatican uh, in some of my uh, Vatican II episodes I have listened or I have listed some of the channels and websites that you can go to to familiarize yourself with this with these teachings now and by the way they're not just on YouTube um, what what um, prompted this episode um, there's a couple of set of contest channels on SoundCloud and Spotify I've also listed those just check the show notes from anything having to do with Vatican II there should the 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 uh, the platform should be on there but these particular uh, podcasts are called uh, True Restoration Radio and um, Norvis Ordo Watch and a lot of the stuff that's on True Restoration has been uh, is at least I want to say over almost 10 years old almost and they are a pay-as-you-go service although you can pay for individual episodes since my finances have been utter chaos for over the past year I have not been able to subscribe to them so I've only been able to consume up until episode 5 or I'm sorry uh, season 5 or 6 but when I listen to some of these talks I hear the host say something along the lines of well Sedevacantis you know Vatican II has has distorted the meaning of some of these traditional Catholic terms now I've already covered that particular aspect of the Sedevacantis position in a previous episode that's not what I want to talk about uh, another thing that I've noticed is that set of accountants, not all of them, I'm, I'm thinking of one particular set of accountants podcast in particular who speaks, uh, who doesn't use jargon and speaks straight from the hip, kind of like what I'm trying to do right here. But the rest of them, as I said, they use the Dewey Rames pronunciations um, for figures in the Bible mm. Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Messiah. Pick up if you're if you're if you're not familiar, you know, uh, Dewey Rames Bibles are pretty cheap. Just pick one up and go through there. And you'll get a, an idea of what I'm talking about. And a lot of the material, and by the way, this is not the fault of Sedevacantis. 
since Vatican II has actually tampered with and Vatican II types are the only thing I can call them are vandals and destroyers because they've taken traditional Catholic prayers and totally distorted and obfuscated the orthodox meaning of those prayers in the guise of well we need to update the prayers you know to modern people which brings me to the topic of this episode and by the way um I can speak authoritatively on this phenomenon because several of the prayers that I use from my traditional prayer book printed before Vatican II, which uses the Dewey Reims Old English uh, language and uh, sentence structures. As I said, it was a blessing that I took Shakespeare in high school and if you told me then that it would come in handy later, I would have told you that you were full of garbage. But it, it was a blessing because being familiar with a little bit of Shakespeare and having been in church, Protestant churches that use the King James Version, which is not to be confused with the Dewey Reigns, um, I'm kind of familiar with how... Um, the 15th, uh, the 16th century English is structured. Anyhow, I have firsthand experience with this because some of the prayers that I pray, pray out of my traditional prayer book, I, when looking to put these prayers on places like Pinterest or, um, Twitter I, I, I've read the updated Vatican II versions of these prayers and it totally distorts the meaning and the theology behind the original prayer now this is going to seem contradictory but actually it isn't because, as I said before, because of this phenomena, Sedvacantis insists on using the, the um, traditional prayers as they were written in the 16th century English. And I'm, I think from here on out through the rest of the episode, I'm just going to use Shakespearean English for better for better uh, ease of understanding, they use those terms because Vatican II has done literal vandalism and damage to the prayers. And what I want to encourage Sedevacantis to do is think about this point. Back in the first century of the church, there was the Arian heresy. And the Arians took over 
depending on your sources, between 80 to 90% of the Catholic churches. And a lot of faithful Catholics went over to their side. The reason I'm bringing this up is, without giving a history lesson, you can look it up. Um, the traditional, the true Catholics of that time, well, actually that's a bad example because basically in the first century of the Catholic Church, um, outside of different countries, um, you, you had the difference in vernaculars, but Latin was the, the language of the church. And so the, the Arians, they could monkey with the meanings or the, the doctrines behind the meanings, but they couldn't, they couldn't actually do damage to the teachings themselves. Because, because of the time and place. I mean, yeah, they could spread their heresy, but they couldn't do what Vatican II is doing and spread their heresy behind the facade of being the Catholic Church. So I apologize for the slight diversion. Basically what I'm trying to say is is if we take and St. Paul's epistles teach different people are called to different things. And that's kind of what I got at in episode 4 in my episode of Set of a Contest is not everyone is called to be a teacher, not everyone is called to be a apologist. Not everyone is called. We all have different temperaments and, and strengths as, 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 as true Catholics, and we should be working toward that end. But what I want to urge the set of a contest who may listen to this is, if we are trying to evangelize people who are either non-Catholic or we're trying to evangelize the Vatican II sect members who are very ignorant of what true Catholicism means and they've been made this way person, uh, purposely and even some of the what I call the uh, neotrads they're also very ignorant although a lot of them will not admit their ignorance but that's that's just the culture and the society we live in today uh, for pride is one of the main uh, operating sins of this time and place and society and so for somebody to have enough humility to admit well maybe I don't know something is literally an athemna to them because and basically an athemna just means it's, it's a condemned idea. It's a condemned idea to them because to admit that you don't know something somehow makes you stupid or, you know, if it goes against a cherished idea, then you can't admit that the idea that you've been following all this time 
was wrong. Because somehow that reflects badly on you. Not that you were taught wrong, not that you were misled, but somehow or another it it goes against who you are as a person. Your image, for lack of a better term. So if we are called to evangelize and a lot of the apologetics material that I've listened to from said Vacantis is the reason for this for this episode because they're using our what a lot of people would consider archaic terms and um and verbiage and um, theological ideas that the average person who is ignorant and ignorance and stupidity are two separate things just to get that out there a lot of people a lot of what they're talking about probably goes over most people's head not to mention the fact that in today's society and culture, reading is considered a hardship if it can't be broken down into like a 15-second soundbite, most people lose their focus. And by the way, everything I'm talking about, I'm not excluding myself from. Um, but for... The purpose of disclosure, I am working to improve on those areas that I'm talking about. But most people, I mean, <laughs> um, Father Bernard Utley's podcast on the spiritual life, which was on Nova Sordo Watch, a lot of his episodes run into two-hour chunks. And even said of the contest themselves were complaining that, oh, this is too long. I don't have time. Without realizing if you're doing a deep study into something, and I, I've repeated this ad nauseum, but will not get tired of reading. Oh, I'm sorry, listing this. Books are essential. Books are essential. If you can't read and have no choice but to listen to a podcast, my suggestion is, if it's a two-hour podcast, break it up into chunks. And that goes hand-to-hand with reading. If you're reading something dense, it, you don't have to read an entire chapter. And for that matter, that goes for reading the Bible. A lot of the ideas in the New Testament and for that matter, the Old Testament, are have deep meaning. And to read a whole chapter without understanding what you're reading is not advisable. So, if you're reading, uh, I don't know, theology, church history, uh, spiritual teachings, or the Bible itself, break it up into chunks. You don't have to read an entire chapter. Read a paragraph and focus in on that one paragraph. 
Anyhow, so in addition to people not wanting to admit that they're ignorant on a subject, not wanting to give up a cherished idea because they think that everything that I just spoke of reflects badly on them if they have to admit, you know, that they either don't understand or if they somehow admit to themselves that, hmm, maybe I was, I was uh, under uh, the wrong idea, the wrong understanding about my church or whatever, that this reflects badly on me without realizing that this is part of not just the spiritual life in general, but of growing as a person in particular. You don't necessarily even need to believe in God to, to, to get the concept that part of maturity is admitting when you're wrong and trying to correct or learn where the teachings are wrong so you don't get fooled in the future. Anyhow, so there's that. There's the short attention span. And, and by the way, I've said this in previous episodes. For, for those of you who haven't heard these things, um, having a short attention span is not a, a slam. It's not a slam. It's not a, a taunt. It's not an insult. It is just a statement of fact. Okay? It's not, it's, it, it's a statement of fact. It's not an insult. And nobody should take it personally. Because basically, and I never get tired of, I've said this ad nauseum, basically from the start of the American Revolution on, the powers that be have been trying to dumb down and make ignorant the people of, of, of their particular countries. And I'm going to talk about America in particular because I can't talk about Europe. Although I'm sure if you talk to some Europeans, they would probably tell you the same thing. But especially, especially since the 1960s, this particular aspect of culture and society has been ramped up, and purposely so. And I covered this in a previous episode. There's a reason for that. If you have a short attention span and you're ignorant and on top of that you have not been taught to think critically. In other words, to, to not allow your feelings to infect, uh, to infect the way you're thinking then you're going to take things at face value and you're just going to go along with the crowd. Which is funny, speaking from my own personal experience, I remember when I was in high school and in the 80s and in the, in the 90s that 
oh, you, you have to be an individual, you have to be an individual. And when people were saying that, <laughs> they were basically talking about, you know, the outside, the outside of you, not the inside being an individual. Because on the outside, yeah, you could you you can dress up, you know, in a leather jacket or whatever, dye your hair pink, have multiple piercings and multiple tattoos, but if you're going along with what your peers think, despite maybe having some doubts about the ideas that they're espousing, you're not an individual. True individualism lies in your critical thinking skills and standing apart from the crowd not from the outside but from the way you think and for those of you who may be my age some of you may disagree violently with me disagree violent, violently with what I'm saying others may see what I'm trying to get at because the powers that be, the powers that run government, society, and culture, they don't want independent thinkers. They want conformity. They want, they want people to go along with the trends, with the, with the, uh, uh, the, the fashions, the, uh, the, um, oh, there's a special word I want to use, the, um, um, I can't think of it, but you get what I'm saying. They, they want you to go along with what's popular, what's hip, what's trendy. Basically, they, they don't want independent thinkers. And if an independent thinker should rise above a certain level to where his independent, his or her independent thought may affect how people think, then they pull... They literally squash it. They, they, however they can, they squash it. There's a reason I'm raising this issue. Society and culture have not only been vandalized and dumbed down and basically crippled, especially the critical thinking part. If you're... If you're evangelizing what I call the ultimate truth, which is pre-Vatican II Catholicism, and the one true church, and I never get tired of, of telling Sadducees this, you need to speak in terms and tailor your message toward your audience. If you speak to the average uh, secular person on the street the way you talk to your set of accountants' friends, they're, they, they're not going to understand and they're probably going to shut you down. You have to tailor the message towards your audience. Which is funny. One area 
of Sedevacantism that absolutely sets my teeth on edge is they'll talk about modernism. Oh, that's modernist. That's modernist thinking. But yet they will use Masonic modernist political terms to differentiate between what is orthodox and what is not orthodox. If you read most Catholic material written before Vatican II, those, those priests and, and monks and nuns did not use the term liberal and conservative. Those are Masonic political terms. And the same people who have accused me of, of using modern, modernist verbiage are the ones that are using the terms conservative and liberal when describing, as far as I know, um, the the orthodoxy and unorthodoxy. I've actually heard Sedevacantist bishops and priests use the term liberal and conservative when talking about Vatican II. If you, I don't care how traditional, you know, you think of yourself, if you're, if you're ascribing that Vatican II is a legitimate council, and legitimate, you know, everything that came from it is legitimate. You, you're, you're not a traditionalist. I'm sorry, you're not. Now, having said that, I understand enough of Sedevacantist history to understand, like, for the first 20 years, things were up in the air and nobody, nobody knew how it was going to turn out. But in this day and age, to use the terms... Uh, liberal and conservative to describe, you know, I'm sorry, there is no liberal and conservative. Those are political terms. You're either orthodox or you're unorthodox. Period. End of story. And like I said, I apologize for the vehemence, but when I hear this, it absolutely sets my teeth on edge. Because how are you going to call somebody like me modernist who use modern day verbiage to try to reach people who are ignorant when you're using Masonic modernist political terms to describe theology? They don't mix. They're oil and water. They do not mix. And, well, I'm going to get to that in a minute. Um, but I, 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 I have pounded this home. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to use that term. I beat a dead horse to the point where you could make stakes out of the corpse and set of a contest either blow it off or ignore me without thinking of the deeper implications of what I'm trying to tell them. A lot of set of accountants, for all their talk about modernity, don't even realize that they're moderns themselves and have the same issue as the people that they're taking to task. 
That's the bottom line. They suffer from the same defects as the society and culture that they are in. You can deny it. You can, you can dismiss it all you want to. The truth is the truth. I'm trying to be charitable, but part of charity is not is not denying a truth because you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. For all you set of contests out there, you need to go back and, and read about in the old catechisms about charity and what the popes have said about charity. Anyhow, uh, um, another thing, and this is a recent phenomenon. Like I said, I've had a little over a year to listen to set of contest material and so I've had an opportunity to not just listen to stuff from 2012, but actually listen to stuff from the from like the 1990s onward. And in the 1990s, the the set of contest bishops who were then priests, and some of them who've remained priests denounced Vatican II in no uncertain terms. And I've been noticing a trend that they're muddying the waters. As I said previously, there is, my verbiage is not chosen at random. It may sound like I'm just ranting and raving. My verbiage is chosen because clarity of expression and clarity of terms is one of the dogmas of Catholic um, teaching. That if you're writing theology, and, and when I say this, I'm talking about for the average person in the pews, not for other specialists like yourself, you're supposed to use clear, concise terms and language that somebody who, and when you're writing for children, you write for children, obviously, but you're writing toward the, this is not an insult either, the lowest common denominator. And by the way, just so we're clear, I consider myself to be the lowest common denominator. I have a very low IQ and I barely graduated high school. And the only reason I did that and not quit was because so I could get into military. It was a requirement. So I did the bare minimum I could so I could graduate. But I consider myself to be the lowest common denominator. And that's what I mean when I say it is a part of, of true Catholic dogma uh, teachings that when you are writing or expressing apologetics, whatever you're doing to inform the faithful, you got to do it with the, with the aim of speaking to the lowest common denominator. So when I hear, when I hear set of contest priests and bishops call um, 
Vatican II types, or what I call the Vatican II sect, Catholics, when I hear them call what I call neo-traditionalists, traditionalists, that muddies the water. And I've stated this in a previous episode. Because when you talk to them that way, they think that there's nothing wrong with the views that they hold. Now, I'm not, I'm not putting myself in judgment over the people that use these terms like that. I'm just, I'm giving an observation by how, say, when I was in the Vatican II sect and somebody had called me a Catholic, it would have confused me if they were telling, calling me a Catholic but saying that the church I was in is heretical. Because to me, you're either Catholic or you're not. Now, different people, individuals, yes, I understand that. But it, it muddies the waters is what I'm trying to say when you use those terms. And as I said in another episode, the, the Masonic ideas of liberalism had infected the church as early as the early 1800s. Because, as I said previously, I was reading a book on masonry written in the 1870s. The author was a Monsignor. And I have no doubt that this Monsignor was a very devout Catholic, but he was calling Protestants separated brethren. It's in his book. It, it's in the book uh, Freemasonry Expo Exposed. The author's name is Monsignor George Dillon. He was calling Protestants separated brethren. Now for the uninitiated, in, in the Vatican II document on ecumenism, it calls Protestants, not just, well, it calls Protestants separated brethren. And does not call um, religions such as Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, what they are. Pagan religions. It doesn't call them pagans. But they are. So, that's how deep the rot of Masonic liberalism has infected even, even before Vatican II. It, it, it had its tentacles in the actual Catholic Church. And once again, I'm not, I'm not criticizing the, the, uh, the orthodoxy of the, of the Monsignor in question. I just found it for lack of a better term I found it ironic that a Monsignor writing about Freemasonry unwittingly was using liberal Freemasonic terms to describe 
quite frankly, people who were heretics, considered heretics before the 1700s. But now all of a sudden they're separated brethren. And when it comes to that kind of irony, I absolutely despise that kind of irony, honestly speaking. And by the way, I haven't just noticed it in his book. I've had the opportunity to read some books written between the late 1800s to prior to Vatican II and certain authors uh, and I'm going to say this much to your displeasure American set of accountants by so-called American pre uh, traditional American priests pre-Vatican II who were also calling Protestants separated brethren and to add insult to injury I raised this point on Twitter. I happen to have a copy of My Catholic Faith by Bishop Morrow, which is a staple in Sedvacantist circles. And once again, I don't consider myself to be a genius or privy to anything that shouldn't be known to any Sedvacantist who take their faith seriously. But his, his section on the duties of the Catholic toward the American government and the Lord blessed me on this, on this issue because I had listened to Pope Leo XIII's encyclical against Americanism and some of the ideas they weren't blatantly in your face like Vatican II is but some of the ideas were some of the things if, if you hadn't read or heard Pope Leo's encyclical against Americanism and not just his encyclicals but Pope Pius X's encyclicals on modernism and prior encyclicals prior to that, you would have never known that some of the issues that are discussed in this book are tinged with Americanism. And by the way, I, I, hate, to, I hate to be a broken record here, Americanism was one of the heresies denounced at Vatican II. And one of the authors of the Americanist heresy that made its way into Vatican II was a modernist, John, I'm sorry, yeah, John Corey, uh, Courtney Murray, John Courtney Murray, I believe, was the theologian's name. He might not have been a theologian, he might have been a bishop. Regardless, one of one of the heresies of Vatican II was Americanism. That was denounced. And here, 60 years later, we have being charitable, despite what you may think, I'm being charitable, I think well-intentioned set of accountants who, and by the way, for the most part, the book is perfectly perfectly orthodox 
But they do not note that in his section on the relations between American Catholics and the American government, the fact that Americanism is a heresy and should be, is part of Masonic liberalism troubles me. It troubles me because I covered this in a previous episode and I'm getting ready to wrap up here. We everybody should love their country. Now, one of the blessings that Lord Jesus and His Blessed Mother gave me was the opportunity to study politics before I decided to get serious about Catholicism. And any deep reading of American politics will tell you our government was corrupt from the get-go. It is a literal Masonic government. without getting into the fact that most modern governments are Masonic. But the American government was the first government, because you've got to remember the timeline. The American Revolution was way before the French Revolution. And there was a lot of interplay between the French revolutionaries and the American revolutionaries. But it's, it is... The first modern, and when I say modern, you could substitute the word Masonic liberal government that was based on Masonic liberal principles. So that is why I said in an earlier episode, I'm an American, you know, in the sense that I'm born an American and I am an American. I'm part of a, you know, American culture and society shaped who I am, whether I like it or not. But I, I me personally, I, I do not give any allegiance to the American government or any of the things it stands for. Now, a lot of people, you know, especially over the past 10 years, oh, oh my government, it's just it's unrecognizable. If you truly understood American politics, you would understand that if you are a sincere and honest pre-Vatican II Catholic, none of what the American government stands for represents what ostensibly, as a good Catholic, you should believe. At best, it should be an uneasy truce which it is for me. So, in closing, I'm urging set of contests who feel a call to evangelize the uninitiated and try to get them into pre-Vatican II Catholicism. We can keep, uh, well, we are required to keep dogma and doctrine. But that does not mean that we cannot use means that are not 
are are, are not um, you know uh, modern means like right now. It's not just me. Podcasts, Pinterest, uh, Twitter, Telegram, YouTube. These are all modern means. So if we're going to use modern means to evangelize people, and I want you to think with a critical, uh, with critical thinking skills, what's wrong with speaking to the people in modern terms? modern terms and ideas which they will understand fitted to the particular circumstances of the of the era we live in when when the catholic monks were going from italy into france germany and spain they they spoke to the literal pagans in terms and ideas that they understood. If they hadn't, Europe, we wouldn't have had Christendom. Bottom line, we wouldn't have had Christendom. The same principle applies. So, that is the end of this episode. I hope and I pray that people get something out of this. I've noticed a, I've noticed a trend in today's society that if people disagree or take personally what you're trying to tell them, they will tune you out. I hope and I pray that the Holy Ghost helps get this message out because it is our duty as pre-Vatican II Catholics to, to convert people and it is a lifelong process depending on the person and without understanding the truth of the pre-Vatican II Catholic Church People are not going to understand that they are living in a false reality. They're trying to make God's reality fit into what their own personal notions of their reality is. And as long as you deny God's reality, you're not living in the truth. Anyhow, I want to thank you for listening. From the bottom of my heart, I do. You know... I always end my podcast. You don't have to listen. If you got to this part, you did. And I truly, truly appreciate it. And I want to let you all know, I do pray for everyone that I come into contact with, whether indirectly, you know, uh, going into a business or, you know, podcast or visiting my social media sites or directly through personal interaction. But I pray for everyone who comes into contact with me. Because what, what I'm talking about, you can dismiss this at your own peril. It is a matter of your eternal salvation, your eternal soul. 
Um, I want to say also, God bless you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Jeune Seigneur, ton œuvre splendide, un cœur de feu, une âme de guerrière, tu les donnas à la Vierge timide, que tu voulais couronner de laurier. Sainte Jeanne de France, notre espérance repose en vous. Sainte Jeanne de France, priez, priez pour nous. Jeanne entendit dans son humble prairie des voix du ciel l'appeler au combat. Elle partit pour sauver la patrie. La douce enfant à l'armée commanda. Sainte Jeanne de France, notre espérance repose en vous. Sainte Jeanne de France, priez, priez pour nous. Des fiers guerriers, elle gagne les âmes. L'éclat divin de l'envoyé des cieux. Son pur regard, ses paroles de flamme. Sur recourber les fronts audacieux. Sainte Jeanne de France, notre espérance repose en vous. Sainte Jeanne de France, priez, priez pour nous. Jeanne, c'est toi notre unique espérance. Du haut des cieux, n'ayant tendre nos voix. Descends vers nous, viens convertir la France. Viens la sauver une seconde fois. Sainte Jeanne de France, notre espérance repose en vous. Sainte Jeanne de France, priez, priez.